Welcome to Vision Driven with Resin Architecture, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of architecture, development, and construction. I'm your host, Greg Croft, and my co-host is Jamie Moulton, and we are thrilled to have you join us on this journey of learning, inspiration, and insight. When you talk about real estate, I would always recommend that you go into it with the exit in mind. Advice I'd give somebody that's presenting their case or pitching their, their loan to a bank is just to be really well prepared. Whether you're dreaming of building a space for your business or simply curious about the fascinating world of architecture and development, join us on this exciting adventure as we unlock the secrets to successful projects and empower you to turn your vision into reality. Our guest today is Luke Jolly. Luke is with uh, Harper Levitt Engineering. Uh, you're a civil engineer, uh, and you his experiences includes transportation, geotechnical, public wells, public water systems, sanitary sewer systems, storm systems, land development, site design, and roadway design, and working with the client with uh, on public bidding, awarding, and contract and construction oversight while coordinating with clients and contractors. Um, so pretty much everything that has to do with dirt, anything that's in the ground and dealing with water that's landing on that ground, that's that's kind of the civil engineer's role. Um, Luke, can you just as can you give us both a brief history of, of you and then maybe a little bit about your company as well? Yep. So I started working for Harper Levitt, which we kind of go by HLE now just because there's no Harpers or Levitts left yeah. in the company. Um, but I started working there at 16. Um, my dad was one of the previous owners. And so it's kind of been ever since I've been able to work besides moving pipe or something. I've, I've worked for HLE started out on the survey side of things, survey crew, construction, staking, etc. And then, uh, I got home off a of mission and decided I, after that, I decided I didn't want to do surveying because I hated blue topping out in the heat of the summer. Um, so, but I decided to go into civil engineering since kind of what I knew um, and I liked math. So yeah, I went, started out at Utah State and then finished ISU after I got married and then just been at HLE ever since. Um, we've, we've been around since Jack Harper was the original owner from 1969. Um, so we celebrated our 50 year four years ago or so. Um, so yeah, we've been in this Valley a long time, um, started in Blackfoot. Then we opened an office in Isle Falls. Um, we were the first to have a materials testing lab in the Snaker plane. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, a we're all fit all in one encompassing, I guess, company where we do land surveying all aspects of civil you mentioned a lot transportation geotechnical structural um water sewer um, we do some environmental so essentially everything and then we have our materials lab on top of that so yeah there's not much in the civil aspect that we we don't do we don't do a lot the structural side of things with buildings we do some if we need to, but most of it's in the bridges and things like that. But yeah. And not to age you or anything, but how long have you been at HLE then? So what is that? 27 years. Okay. Okay. 
So yeah, more of my life than not. Yeah, <laughs> sadly, I guess. Yeah. So you've explained to us why you ended up as a civil engineer instead of any other discipline of engineering. <clears throat> so tell us why, what aspects of civil engineering are more along the lines of something you enjoy versus some that you just tolerate? Um, that's a good question. Um, I like, I would say the design aspect of things more, or now I'm in a more, uh, a manager role per se as the president of the company. So dealing a lot more with, um, employees and problems that are associated with things. Um, but I like that just to get down, you know, to on a project and just start designing, seeing a vision of a finished product on a blanket piece of ground or whatever. Um, I feel that that's something I'm, uh, successful at of envisioning what it needs to look like at the end um, to make that a successful project. Um, yeah. So roads, parking lots, that kind of stuff, I would say I enjoy more than the other aspects. But What are, what are some of the, I feel like at least in our industry, people don't really know what we do. And I'm assuming it's very similar in civil engineering. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have for what you do or don't do? I would say one of the biggest ones is probably when they hear the word civil, they don't realize that civil encompasses all of those aspects that we've talked about. You know, not just, oh, doing a parking lot design or a road design, but you know, the storm system design, the water infrastructure, the sewer infrastructure, the geotechnical design, all and the structural of the building, all of that is an aspect of civil. Essentially anything that goes on on most projects, development projects have some sort of aspect of civil to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say is probably one of the, they're like, oh, you do that and that and that and that. Right. <laughs> keeps growing yeah so when does a civil engineer become part of the design process um sometimes at the very beginning prior to anyone else getting involved a lot of times if since we're also a land surveying company if if they're doing platting or something like that they we get involved relatively early um but then sometimes we're on the back end after they've hired, say, an architect or the rest of the team, and then they they bring us on as a sub to that. So, yeah, we're sometimes the prime and sometimes a sub consultant on that aspect. Yeah, one of the things that, I mean, at least from our perspective, we almost always, I think sometimes we'll do some concept work, and then it's like, hey, now we need to pull in a civil engineer because we don't know the extents of the site or, you know, right. we're using Google earth, which is kind of accurate, but somewhat, within but you feet. start getting to where it's like, Hey, we're kind of tight here. We really need to pull in a civil engineer. And, and a lot of times there's complications as well that we're not aware of, you know, even in Google earth, if it's, if we haven't made it out to the site yet and, and seeing the, the topography or, or recognizing, Hey, yeah, the, the site's flat, but, two feet under this is, is rock. 
And so getting that geotech report uh, is, is, you know, it can change whether you have a basement or not, and it can change some other things where it's like, oh, now let's bring up the site a little bit because we don't want to deal with that. And, you know, there, there can be a lot of ramifications there that people don't recognize. Um, what, what kind of, what would you tell somebody if, if it was like, Hey, you're, this is your first time developing a project. Um, what would you tell them in terms of, and let's just say, you know, we have this hypothetical client, they're working with an architecture team already, but they've hired you directly. What, what kind of advice would you be giving them? I would tell them to try and figure out as much as possible, um, at the beginning of the project so that we don't get halfway down the road and have to make major changes. One, it's, it's a nightmare, nightmare scenario for us, but it also costs the client so much more money if, if they don't understand their vision of what they're wanting out of this. Um, you have some examples, like just uh, of something that they've changed that has had I mean, even as simple as, so we do quite a few hotels and every single time that they say, oh, we just need to make this five foot tweak. We need to add more space onto the conference room. But yet we've already started our site design and now we have to readjust parking, we have to readjust storm, we have to readjust elevations. And, and so just every little tweak, oh, it's just you know one little thing, but for us, it has ramifications across the entire site a lot of times. Because now you're looking at, hey, we, we had just enough landscape coverage and we just lost a parking stall. Yep. So now I can make it up. How, yeah, how are you <laughs> gonna get that back? Because it seems like the other thing is, is, which they're trying to make the most bang for their buck, of course, right? So they're trying to put as much as they can into this little site, where instead, if we just had a little bit more that said, okay, I really only need to use this, then it gives us a lot more freedom. Right. It's not how it happens usually. Yeah. It's, it's hard to make things pencil out when you can't sell parking stalls. Yeah. It's not a parking garage. You guys do parking garages? We've done one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we didn't bring that one up, but okay. Well, I'm going to back up just a little bit. Um, part of our intent in building this podcast is to educate first-time developers who are new to the process and maybe unfamiliar with some of the terms. So will you just go over some of the deliverables like geotechnical report, explain that in simple terms, maybe a survey, the difference between an Atlas survey and a topo survey or those okay. kinds of things. Yep. Um, so let's just start with the surveying since that usually happens first. So topo survey is when we send a GPS guys with the GPS out and get the topography of the land, anything that's there, whether it's bare ground, whether there's existing utilities, whether there's, you know, creeks or sidewalk or storm or sewer, we get all the existing features so that we can start a design based on real world information. Um, and an Alta survey goes in more in depth where there's certain things like you, we need to have building corners and eaves and everything within a certain dimension tolerance that has to be so accurate. Everything needs to be shown striping. Um, a lot of times it's even size of trees and things like that have to be shown on that. And those are mainly for if a someone is buying a property that 
is either vacant or not vacant and they're needing to see for the lender wants to see that information. Before you move past the survey, the Alta survey, does it supersede or take the place of a topo or do you do both sometimes? Is there any Usually need? a topo, a Alta doesn't worry as much about the contour stuff. So that aspect maybe isn't quite as accurate. Um, so there's a lot of times is some supplemental from a topo, that, from an Alta that needs to be done on a topo. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. Keep yeah. talking about your deliverables. Um, so I guess for moving on to that, then there's the, the platting process where, um, so there's usually a preliminary plat and a final plat. And usually for the preliminary plat, you have to go to planning zoning first. That's if one also to make sure that it's zoned correctly, the property is zoned correctly. If it's not, then you have to go through a rezone and maybe it's not even in a city. You have to go through an annexation process. Um, that's kind of the first steps. And then if after the annexation, the rezone are good, um, then you go after the preliminary at plat aspect through planning and zoning, which then if it's in the city, it'll go to city council after that. And if it's in the county, it'll go to the county commissioners after that for preliminary approval. And then after that, then you just have to go to final back to city council or final back to commissioners for that final plat of the subdivision or whatever it is. And for Idaho Falls, I think I recently heard that that's something like a, a 60 day process. Is that about right for planning? That would be really fast, okay. I would say. What's typical? That's probably their ideal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say you're probably, by the time you go through the full platting process, I would guess you're more six to nine months. Okay. So that we need to plan for that. You got to yeah. plan ahead. Yes. Okay. Can't start in the middle of the summer and expect to be, you know, breaking ground in the fall. It's not going to probably happen. Um, starting now in the fall time and then hoping to start in the spring with breaking ground on stuff would be more realistic. Are you having that same length of time in other jurisdictions? Yeah, yeah pretty okay. much okay. everywhere. That's pretty standard. Yeah. Cause you have to be usually 30 days prior to getting on planning and zoning or whatever on their agenda. And then you go to that one and then you have to wait till the next deadline, which is usually a month later. So before you get to city council, you're usually 60 to 90 days before from the time you first submit for planning and zoning until you get to city council for that first step. Any other deliverables you want to go over? The geotechnical, so that's a report based on essentially what the subsurface stuff we can't see. So we can, you can either go and do excavation with a, you know, a backhoe or an excavator, or you can use a drill rig um, to see, depending on the depth that you're worried about or what depth the foundation you think is going to um, have a presence on, um, will determine whether you feel that you need to use a drill rig or not. But the nice thing about the Snake River Plain is we are in the riverbed. And so most of the areas are river rock. So it's that GP soil, which is great for building. I mean, we have some of the best material to build on in this valley. I mean, yeah, there's some clay spots or some sandy spots or whatnot, but for the most part, you dig down two to three feet 
in that snake river plain then you're going to hit that gravel which is which is pretty nice up here in idle falls you'll run into the basalt layers especially close to the river but um other than that you still should be getting that that's why there's gravel pits everywhere around here because we have that good source of material for our roads but also for our buildings but yeah that geotechnical report goes tells us what kind of soils are beneath the earth and at what layers they are and then gives you the bearing capacities of each of those soils then also what the depth of water is um, what the seismic risks are um, which there is seismic activity from you know yellowstone and things near here so there's that's always something to consider too um, but yeah that's kind of one of the first items usually done too prior to um, a project is getting that geotechnical done so that you can get that information to the structural engineer um, so that they know what to start designing based on how how do you feel like uh, civil engineering has changed during the course of your career um, I would say the biggest thing is just continued of technology I mean so the main program that we use is uh, AutoCAD um, so AutoCAD back, you know, in the 2000s or whatever, even 98, it, it was kind of like just the, the LT. So it's kind of more 2D. And now since about 2000, I can remember seven or nine, where this, the civil 3D came out. Um, so it's, you'll be able to build actual 3D surfaces or 3D models or uh 3D pipe networks or things like that, where you're getting into more real world um, uh, design and making it look more real world. I mean, you can design a road corridor and then you can click a button and it'll drive you down that road so you can see if there's issues or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So I would say the biggest thing is technology that it's advancing and it's only gonna increase um, as these other things, I mean, the AI stuff, who knows where that's going to go. Um, I had a meeting with ACEC in Denver this last May, and that was one of the things that they talked to about is um, the AI stuff and how many jobs that will actually probably be lost from the AI type aspect where everything is getting automated. And I mean, it's up to 30 to 40% of workforce will have to find other work somewhere else because you don't need it as much. But so there, times are changing for sure. Some good and some bad, I guess. Resin uses 3D modeling too, of course. I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, and we often tout the values, but tell us the values from a civil side. Is it driving down the road i mean are we just talking smoke and mirrors or what's the actual uh, value that we get out of using a 3d autocad instead of paper and pencil um i would say for, for for surfaces especially i mean you can see you can flip it up and you can see you know okay wow i didn't see that this slope was running right the wrong direction or way steep or or whatnot, or in your pipes, you can do pipe checks where you have pipes crossing. You can make sure that we're in 2D. You're just, okay, if I calculate from X to Z, this is the distance, 
and then this is my slope and I, okay, this is roughly the elevation, this pipe where now it'll, okay, check my pipes when you design them in 3D and okay, no, there's no interferences or whatever. So there, it, it definitely, I think, simplifies things, but I think it also makes us more accurate. I mean, the next step is instead of back, you know, in 96, when I was, so GPS was just starting when I was uh, at, at about that time. And it was more of a, I remember you had to see your base station. So unless if there was a rolling hill, you had to go set it up on top and then you could still only see line of sight essentially. And now it's off of, you know, satellite networks and, and, and other networks that you don't even have to have bases set up. But in, in doing that technology, now it's the contractors that have a lot of that information. So we're taking those 3D surfaces that we talked about and they're importing that into their CAT or their excavator even. And we have a lot of contractors, that's all that how to dig their pipes. They tell it to dig to the bottom of this model and that's the bottom of the trench builds in the slope, builds everything. So takes all, a lot of the guesswork and uh, problems, uh, causes some problems, but takes some problems away. Um, and that's all in that 3D aspect of things. So it's, it's transferring, not just, we're not just using it, but the contractors, I think you do it even more than we do. That's what we've noticed that um, the 3D modeling that is makes our job simpler, such as laser scanning an existing building for a remodel, that gives us accurate data points and it takes a lot less time. There's a lot more accuracy than going out with a tape measure trying yes. to get dimensions, but it's also been useful for our clients. Excellent for consultants too. There's yeah. it's value for the whole team. Yeah. I don't think, uh, at least on the building side, I don't feel like it's as far as what you're describing because we're not, we're not necessarily giving it to our contractor and saying, Hey, put this into whatever machine and, right. and have at it, which, you know, at some point uh, there are technologies out there, you know, concrete formed buildings, 3d, printer, 3D printed yeah. buildings right now that those are, those are interesting, um, to, to see, but it's not, uh, it's not widespread. And it, it will be, I guess, even more interesting to see you know, how things evolve over the next 10 years, even in that, in that realm of technology and in construction, because it is a, I feel like it's a field that doesn't really get touched with that much technology. It's definitely coming, but it's, right. we still swing hammers. Right. Still have to have that manual labor to get a lot of that stuff so, done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, civil engineers can, so you guys can contract directly with the owner or with an architect. What are the advantages and disadvantages of either situation from your perspective? Um, I would say if the, the main focus of the project is a, the building and then everything else flows from that, I would say the, it's, they're better off hiring the architect and having the, the civil underneath the architect. Um, but if it's the, there's more dealing with the civil or the side aspect than the buildings, et cetera, then I would say they're better off probably uh, directly contracting with the civil engineer. Um, just mainly because 
that way we have one point of contact instead of having to have the client go through the architect to give us the civil information. Um, and then not that not saying that we can't go that route once we're hired under an architect have direct communication with the owner or whatever. Um, but usually that's where we fall into those two realms of which way we go, whether we're directly under an architect or, and then sometimes it's just the, the owner just flat out wants, I only want one point of contact. And so then we've done it both ways too, whether we're the, the prime or the sub. I, yeah, I know that we've, we've, you guys have been the prime and we've been your sub and, and vice versa, mostly vice versa, but it does make sense on occasion where it's like, yeah, this is mostly, you know, a little bit of architecture, you know, maybe there's a little elevation upgrade or something. And then there's some quite a bit of site rework that's happening. Um, so, okay. Um, how do you balance, uh, the client's desires with the engineering requirements? So, so our take is, and it's not just in the engineering, it's in the surveying side too, is that as long as it's meeting a, a rule or a code, we're going to fight for our client to get what they want. Um, as long as it meets the requirements, um, that's we we're, we work for the client. Um, we have relationships with the, the cities or the, the other entities, but still we're, we're hired by that client to get them the product that they want as long as, yeah, it falls within those, those codes. Is there anything that you've ever had to do that's like, yeah, I'm staying within these bounds from like either city requirements or code requirements, but I'm doing something very different to meet the client's needs still within my. I can't think of one per se right off the top of my head. Um, I just can think of examples where clients have said, well, are you working for us or are you working for the city? Because we have to, one, maintain that relationship with the city or else their project's not going to get through because they could make it a living hell for us to try to get a project through if they wanted to. So we got to be it, go about it tactfully saying, well, you know, this, this meets your criteria. So, you know, it might not be the way that you want to do it, but still it meets everything. So this is what our client wants. And so we really push for that to be achieved. Do you but, feel like that adds additional reviews sometimes? Yeah, I would say so. I, f I guess uh, particularly there's a project that I worked with uh, Gilmore with uh, HLE um, on and, you know, we were very close to the city or in terms of, you know, the city has this kind of flex space where they're like, hey, we can give you zero setback or we can give you seven feet or anything up anywhere in between that. And this was, you know, kind of a downtown sort of feel that we were going for. We wanted it as close to the street as we could get it. And I feel like there's an additional review rounds. However, on the same note, we were able to add, you know, this kind of comes back to the, you know, we're trying to get as much square footage of building leasable space as we can and also create a certain atmosphere. And so it's like, well, you take seven feet times, you know, even a hundred, it's like that's 700 square feet projected up three stories. In this case, you know, that adds a lot, a of, lot of leasable space. space and that's what makes the project work. And without that, you know, the project doesn't really work. So. Yeah. 
And I, I, I guess that's from a, the private side of things. I think that's one of the frustrations that I think we have working on this side is working with the cities. They have, they look at it from their perspective and not from the other perspective. Um, of okay is this project feasible and most of the time the cities they don't care right well this is what it's going to be and so it's hard or frustrating to say okay well you would you rather have this project go or is it do you would you rather have nothing come and now there's no tax base there's no and so that gets frustrating sometimes dealing with different municipalities but especially when that flexibility does exist where the city right. has already built in, oh, we can do zero to seven, but it's My with a little today. asterisk of, <laughs> but we want it however we want it. And we're going to ask for certain things to be, let you have it. Yeah. And it might depend on the day, which answer we're going to give you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our last question that we always ask each of our guests is if you had just one piece of advice to give to someone who's building a space for their business, their first experience into this realm, what would, what advice would you give them? Um, I would say do your research as much as you can prior to engaging with either an architect or a civil engineer or a surveyor or whatever, do as much research as you, you can on your own and then bring that information uh, to us and then come with your thoughts or ideas of what you want or envision this master plan to be, whether it's a one lot subdivision or site plan, or if it's a 3000 lot subdivision, you know, I mean, we had a client the other day who, which I would have never thought that they wanted a subdivision in the county that they wanted it to, you know, have a, a swimming community swimming pool. They wanted to have all these amenities that are usually reserved for the um, smaller lot subdivisions and more say higher end because of the, to get all those people to come, but they wanted it to even a country one to have some of those aspects and which is perfectly fine, but there's just additional hurdles. If you do it in the County where there's no public water, public sewer, um, so you have these other issues that you have to overcome, but yeah, I would say come with a vision of what you want to see, or you want to achieve your end goal. Um, and then we can go from there. So my follow-up question there would be, how does a lay person, somebody who's never been through the process, how do they convey that vision? What's helpful for you to receive, to be able to understand that vision? I'm working with landscaping at my own house right now and struggling because <laughs> I don't, I'm not very good apparently at conveying the vision. <laughs> so what are the, what are good ways for uh, somebody who's not an engineer, not an architect to approach the process and say, here's my vision. Uh, I would say pictures. I mean, there's developments all over close by or whatever it is that you could say, I like this aspect of this or this aspect of this and then so then you can bring it all together hopefully i would just add it's nice to know which aspect of the picture Correct. they like because sometimes <laughs> you get this hodgepodge of like all these pictures and it's like well you just showed me yeah what what yeah. did you like about that one because it's it doesn't you know when i look at this 
10 pictures, it's like, there's no relation between right. any of these anymore. So, and I think it's a good exercise, uh, as, as the client in this instance to gather those pictures and be able to identify, this is what I like about this. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to build. Yeah. And I think that hits on civil uh, development just as easy as it does a, a single building or a, a space within that building or a space on, uh, on the development itself where it's like, Hey, I want this pocket park. Well, what are you thinking of that? Like, is that, you know, can I use it as a retention pond? Because I need some retention for all of this water runoff. So, or do you want kids to be playing in it? Yeah. Are they swimming in it? Or yeah. They, yeah. What so, are we doing here? Um, in Idaho Falls, I've seen some lower areas. I'm from Houston where retention ponds are quite deep, but I've seen a couple of places in Idaho Falls that are depressed areas that elevation wise that um, also have playgrounds is that a, a use of a retention pond or it has to be it was kind of something that some got thrown in especially not as much on this side of the state but over in like uh, meridian and that areas if you go to a lot of those subdivisions that were built 10 15 years ago a lot of the retention ponds have their playgrounds in them um, I don't, I think they were just like that. They were trying to use every usable space. They were told they needed this amenity. Well, the only place to put this amenity is in this retention pond, but then they don't realize that, oh, we get a flash flood and then it's two feet of water and we have little kids playing in on the, whatever the merry-go-round. <laughs> and so most of those have stopped or gone away. Yeah. I mean, you even look like Hillcrest's uh, baseball diamond or softball diamond right there is in their retention for the whole site. So, so every spring when they want to be playing, they're yep. playing somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's a good use of dual-purposing spaces, but you do have to make those uh, sacrifices when the rain does come. Right. So, awesome. Well, we appreciate your time. Um, if anybody needs to reach out to HLE... Um, we'll throw some links in our, into our, um, uh, no, into sorry. everything. <laughs> we'll just throw the links in. All right. Thanks, Thanks Luke. Yep. And that wraps up another enlightening episode of Vision Driven. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and gained valuable insights into the world of architecture, development, and construction. And don't forget to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us grow and improve our content, and it also helps others discover the podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions for future topics, or if there's a specific guest you'd like us to feature, please reach out to us through our website, resinarchitecture.com, or connect with us on social media at Resin Architecture. We value your input and would love to hear from you.